Hey all, it's Pete. When I was a kid, I played soccer. I was on the Colorado Springs Youth Soccer League called Soxie at the time, and my team was exceptional. We dominated in every game and sported threatening black t-shirts, and the coaches were pathologically gruff parents. The whole youth sports trope parade. Now that was the team. Because there clearly is no I in team, now I shall tell you about myself. I was the goalkeeping position, and I was quite naturally terrible at it. I was in this position only because I was more naturally terrible at every other position. The only reason we won so much is because we had a terrific defense and a terrific offense capped by a striker by the name of Ron Cook, who was so fast on his feet you'd think he was naturally imbued with wheels. If the ball ever made it past our defensive line, the other team was guaranteed to score, with the exception of the single time I managed to stop the ball by meeting it with my face. Our guest today is Dr. Ted Klontz. Ted has been a mentor and friend to Dodge for 20 years. He's an associate professor of practice and financial psychology at Creighton University, a director of the Financial Psychology Institute, in addition to being a sought-after international speaker, author, and researcher. But before that, he was a coach. That's how Dodge and Ted open their conversation today, with a discussion on Ted's approach to confrontation when it comes to coaching in sports, particularly youth sports. That's where I want to ask you all to lean in, right at the beginning. Because whether you're a coach yourself, or if you're a recovering victim of youth sports like me, Ted's experience is positively redemptive. The real nut of the conversation today is in motivational interviewing, a methodology Ted shares that can help probe the roadblocks to personal change, rooted in the sort of paralyzing ambivalence we all deal with in our lives. We all deal with that in in our lives, right? That's not just a me thing. Anyway, bottom line, Ted is fantastic. You'll get it. Listen for a few minutes and you'll discover he's the human manifestation of a warm hug. And we could all use a warm hug right about now. And now I give you Dodge and Ted. Welcome, Ted, and thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate your time and trust and energy coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You and I have known each other almost 20 years. Can you believe that? I have been studying with you that long. I remember uh first group that came together and how that happened. And uh, I think you and I are the only remaining members of that group. We're still meeting, right? We're still meeting almost 20 years later. Yeah, I was thinking about you this morning and realizing I'm not sure this podcast ever would have happened without you in my life. Like you are one of the handful of people's, people who really taught me to think this way, that that change is best arrived at when it is not muscled, when it's not uh, forced by some act of will, and that that process remains even after 20 years of of learning not just information and technique, but so much more than that. Your particular softness, um, it still is mysterious to me and fascinating. It's still a, just a beautiful process. Thank you, Dodge. I- when the new research came out in the mid-90s about that, 
I thought, ah, great. It's, it, it's exactly what my experience was. But I thought it was just a personal experience in, in terms of my own life. The more somebody pushed on me, the more energy I spent resisting what they were asking me to do, and uh, the less I changed. And uh, I thought I was just a sort of a weird guy who doesn't do constructive criticism well, who doesn't do the yelling and screaming and the Vince Lombardi thing. That, that, that actually demotivated me, not motivated me. And uh, I was a young coach and um, back in the 60s. And I, I remember this moment of saying, what kind of coach do I become? Do I become a Vince Lombardi uh, and do the yelling and screaming and the, you know, power, powering my way through it? Uh, or do I do it like the guy at UCLA, uh, the gentle giant who basically allowed people to begin finding their own um, beauty and their own expertise and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And his name was John Wooden. And I, I became, uh, and, and he was pretty successful. I think like eight, 18 in a row UCLA appearances and I don't know, eight or nine or 10 uh, national championships using his method. Right. And uh, uh, so I became a student of that. And uh, I'm still in touch with people who were mentored by him. He would actually take his team to sensitivity training every year for a week as a basketball team, right? And have the, the greatest teachers in the world um, essentially help them know how to motivate themselves. And so that's really what this is all about is we all want to be good and we want to do better and we want to have the most productive life that we could possibly can. And uh, if, if we can just get out of our own way and quite often we need people to help us get out of our own way, but it's not like shoving us through through that. It's, it's about helping us, um, you know, become the person that we most want to become. And if it works for me that way, and what the research did, it shows, well, the pushing thing works for about maybe 20% of the people. Uh, the not pushing part works for about 75 or 80% of the people. So, you know, uh, knowing how to do it and when to do it and where to do it and if to do it works. But I have to admit that if, Somebody wants me to push them, and they tell me that. Some some people used to say, you know, uh, again, I'm not sure how this is rated, but if, uh, like they would come into a group I was doing and say, I need somebody who's going to kick my... Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, well, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> but if at the end of this, you think you still need somebody to kick you, uh, then I'll give you your money back. I'll personally give you your money back. And uh, no one ever asked for their money back. <laughs> You know, it's kind of neat to think about the unfolding story of someone, how, how you become who you are and work the way you do. And I've never really thought about it before right now that it's really important to the psychologist you are now and the way you ran on-site workshops as its owner for all that time with Margie uh, and the way you work with clients literally all over the world, that you were first a coach to kids. Right. teaching them to swing a baseball bat and shoot a basketball. You got really interested in how do I help small, vulnerable, tender-hearted humans get good at something they want to be good at without screaming at them because that's just not your nature. I mean, you were never going to be a Lombardi guy even if you wanted to be. Right. So you had to find a better way for you, and it turned out to be just a better way all the way around. 
that's exactly what happened. And uh, I, I like your thing of it's really interesting to look back and like what shaped this, right? And I had screamers. I, I played sports. I played college basketball and baseball. And I had screamers and yellers. And um, I, I never had the uh, soft approach guy. And uh, he was somewhat of a tyrant. And it's like, okay. Um, all I knew, I in fact, I tried becoming screamer, yeller, or whatever. It's just like, can't do it. <laughs> it's not your way. I, I coach football uh, as an assistant. And, uh, I, you know, it's like, the, hey, uh, you got to teach those people to kill the person in front of you. I'm like, okay, so he's 12 years old or 13 years old. And it's like, I'd rather have him learn how to run around them than run through them and hurt them. And so I didn't last very long as a football coach. <laughs> but football is one of those bowl them over kind of sports, I guess. Yeah. Can be. Yeah. Well, it can be. Doesn't have to be. There are other styles. It's true. I'm, I'm kind of I, I was thinking as you were talking about this, it'd be interesting to interview Pete Carroll, you know, the, the coach for the Seattle Seahawks, who's famous for insisting none of his assistant coaches are allowed to yell at the players and all the players have to participate in meditation. Um, he's really right. much more your kind of coach and it's going pretty well for him so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And it went pretty well for the Chicago Bulls coach who did the same thing. Fascinating. Uh, meditation. And I'm talking about, you know, the Michael Jordans and uh, Scotty Pippins and, you know, uh, so there, there's a lot of success on both sides. I guess we're here to talk about a couple of things. We're here in some ways to talk about the framework that originally, you know, brought our group together, which was to learn this this concept of motivational interviewing and the stages of change as laid out by Prochaska and DiClemente back in the late 70s, which has been a really powerful model in our line of work and especially in the addiction field. It's it's vital. Mm-hmm. Um but much like our, you know, our study group has unfolded, it really has turned out to be less about the structure of those stages than how you interact with each of those stages. And uh, and I remember reading graduate school about these stages of change. And one thing they were saying is this isn't a theory. It's really more a model. It's a structure and you can bring any theory you want to it. Um, so. I'm excited to have you on the show for two reasons. One is to give folks just kind of an idea of when we're looking, when we're trying to create a behavioral change in our lives or somebody else's, if for those listening who happen to be in the change field, um, there's a fairly predictable sequence of stages through which people need to go. Uh, And sometimes they arrive already halfway into that. They're already completely ready to make the change when they make the call. And sometimes they make the call because someone told them to and they're not at all ready to change. Right. Right. And I can see you smiling even as I say it, because you, you and I both know we get a lot of those calls. People yeah. who come pay us to change them, but they aren't ready to change. And so then we get into some interesting work. Um, but I thought what would be really neat in, in addition to describing those stages, which we might review quickly so people know what we're talking about, is really to talk about how you in particular as Ted interact on these different levels. And it's particularly your extraordinary softness that I am fascinated by and the way the way you join people exactly where they are. And less than anyone I've ever met, ask them to change. Like you don't ask people to change. You mostly just feed back to them, well, so here's where you are. Now what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so right. Well, let's get into that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, as you know, there are people who show up on our doorsteps who've been said you need to go do this or else 
Uh, or, you know, they, somebody they trust has said, you need to do this. And so be, they, they come because of the trust that they have uh, for the person who said, you need to do this. But they have no clue, really, <laughs> why, why they're there. And so uh, one of the things I always say is, okay, so you and I are going to be spending an hour together. You could be doing anything, and you're going to be talking to me. And I'm wondering what, you know, what, what makes you think this is a good idea? And, uh, well, so-and-so told me, and it's like, well, you know, what do you, what do you think they had in mind for you? Like, what do they, what do they want for you? What do they think that interacting with me might be? Well, I don't know. It's like, well, how about asking them? Um, and then they usually go, well, you know, I was talking about my (laughs) X, Y, or Z. It's like, oh, okay. So that, that's why they thought uh, this might be a good idea. And, and all of this is something, uh, there's a term that I use called reminding, right? Like, oh, yes, that's why I, that's, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, I remember one lady, I'll never forget, uh, you know her too. But uh, the first time I met her, um, uh, I said, so why do you think I'm here? She invited me to her place because her daughter said, unless you do this, I'll never speak to you again. I mean, that was, that was the daughter's <laughs> bottom line. And, uh, so she said, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. And I said, so, um, you think this is some kind of plot? No, like, like they're trying to create this place for you that's some kind of trap or whatever. I mean, it's just like, well, no. It's like, well, I, I wonder what that is. And she said, I, I don't know. And I said, would you be willing to ask? And so she did. And she said, mm. you know, mom, it's your drinking. And she says, it's okay. so that's how we entered into it. And we just, you know, the pre-contemplation, I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I would need to change. One thing you said is anybody in the change business is like, if we're a parent, if we have a partner, <laughs> if, if we interact <laughs> with any other human being, even a pet, right, uh, that, that we're in the change business. Uh, and some of us get paid for it and some of us, you know, get exasperated by it or, or both. And uh, <laughs> or both. Uh, so, you know, the, what brings up the, you know, like I, I'm thinking about the dog whisperer and the horse whisperer and, you know, they're using the same thing. They're using the nature of the human being to encourage that horse dog person uh, to do what they naturally want to do anyway, but to do more of it or less of it or whatever without the, without the violence involved. So, so the softness is um, uh, several things I always say is uh, I believe that in my mind, before I ever start talking about it, they're probably doing the best they know, the best they can. Um, there's nothing sick about them or broken about them so that that would put me in a position above them. They're just a fellow human being who's pedaling as fast as they can. That's one of my favorite sayings. Everybody's pedaling as fast as they can. Um, and I know nothing. I know nothing. Mm. And there's an old psychologist a long time ago. I think his name is Byron, B-I-O-N or something like that, who uh, I latched onto this. He said, thou shalt begin each hour without memory or destination. And wow. that... That's, that's sort of how I like to approach it. And there's been some late research on the, um, in terms of what people come to people like us or medical doctors or whatever, um, saying this is the problem. 
uh, 70% of the time, that's not, that's not what they're most concerned about. But if we simply say, so what's the most troubling thing about this to you? Now we're dealing with the real thing uh, at a, you know, a much more, they're much more likely to engage or much more likely to stay engaged or much more likely to act in ways to fix this. And this is actually a study done at Mayo Clinic where um, they, they began inserting that question. I know you have uh, this terrible backache. What's your biggest concern? about the backache, rather than focus on, well, let's go fix the back, right? Uh, What's your biggest concern? Well, I've got this farm, and I've got this property, and I want to be able to walk around on it, and, you know, uh, without pain, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, all right, we're going to gear ourselves for that. And now, I'm already motivated, right? This is the motivational interviewing, which is, what is it? This may, if you can help me get to be able to walk on the farm without pain, then I'll do, I'm much more likely to do exactly what you asked me to do and follow through with the exercises that you're going to be asking me to follow through with and, and all that kind of stuff. So simply asking the, uh, the question of what concerns you the most about this um, you know, is, is one of those softness. I, I consider that softness. I don't want to assume that their goal is to eliminate all back pain. Yes. It's, it's like, so, so what is it that's the most troubling to you or, the most concerning to you about this or your your greatest fear about this. So pausing there for just a moment, I'd love to encourage anyone listening to see if they can listen, not just for here's how Ted Klontz works, but here's how I could treat myself at any time. I'm either encountering change or hoping to create change. Like what if we could show up for those moments in our own lives without memory or destination? Without that thing that says, if I don't reach this goal, then everything's bad, or I'll never probably be able to reach this goal because of what I remember from before. Like, what if we could just show up aware of a longing for some shift and stay there without forcing our way through it, and then begin to ask that question like you do? What's the thing that's distressing me most about where I am right now? Like, what, what is it about this that I, that I want to change and why? Yeah, and and the other part you talk about the softness. Um, a, a key component is the shift within myself towards myself. Yeah, that's where the softness comes from. It may exhibit itself externally, but there's there's a softness inside of me as I encounter those things that I don't like so much that I want to change or whatever. Uh, rather than uh, we use words like uh, I need to challenge my. Uh, anxiety. I need to battle my depression. I need to fight my, you know, it's like, uh, that's a war. When we go to war with those things, they begin resisting change, right? So the whole idea is, uh, we have those things inside of us. They are trying to tell us that there's something that's not quite right. And we can either battle the messenger or we can find a way to listen to the messenger. What's going on? And what I always say is you'll find there's a six-year-old scared little kid in there who thinks there's something wrong or a 600-year-old wise one who's saying there's definitely something wrong you need to be paying attention to. And if we can approach ourselves with that gentleness, like, well, here you are again. Um, What do you need me to know? Um, Like, uh, you know, recently... Uh, I, I felt a lot of despair because of all the external things that are happening in my world at this point in time. 
It's like, well, I need to go talk to you. So thanks mm. for showing up. And uh, what do you need me to know? And, and, and part of that was you need to surrender your fantasy about how you think things are and thought things were. And I, I know it means discounting 70 years of your life because <laughs> you've, been, you've been following this star, but it's like, all right, okay, I get it. What do, now what do we do? What do we do with the, what, what's left? So um, these things are not our enemies, uh, our depression, our anxiety, our, you know, our sense of depression, uh, our sadness, our despair. They're really significant messengers, I, I, the way I see it. And I see that with my clients too. These are not your enemies, right? And mm. in a very short time, people go, wow, I never thought of it as an ally. It's like, yeah, it is. It, it believes it's doing you well. It may be terribly misinformed, right? Uh, but it's in that case, it's probably old and it's probably uh, something that's a habitual thing, something that saved you when you were a little kid. And it doesn't know that you're now a grown up to say, hey, mom and dad, I got this. Thank you for the information. Thank you for the reminder. Here are the resources I have that I didn't have then. So let's jump into those stages of change and bring all of these ideas with us into them. Certainly, they'll they'll keep pouring out. But you've mentioned the first stage, which is known as pre-contemplation. Yeah. Essentially, that means that other people uh, see that there's something going on with us, uh, that um, if we behave differently, if we thought differently, if we, you know, it, like they see us um, living in a painful part of our world, we don't even realize there's pain. Uh, but it's when the information comes from the outside that there's something that needs to be changed. That's the first, you know, that's the first stage, which is the pre-contemplation. Then there's the contemplation stage. We already talked a little bit about the pre-contemplation is, so why do you think you're here? You know, what, you know, if we could do that in real life. And my wife says, I, I, I see you as being sort of sad, you know, like, uh, like you, you look frail, right? And, uh, and if I say, so tell me more about what you're seeing, as opposed to resisting that word, it's like she's seeing something, she's using the word frail, right? So the pre-contemplation can happen simply if we, if we listen to what people are telling us, right? That, that they, mm. they're seeing something, and the words they use may be exactly what's going on, but they're seeing something that's somewhat distressing to them before we see it. You know, one of the things that mm. I heard a long time ago is that we're in the greatest denial about the world that we grew up in, in terms of its effect on us. Right? Yes, Everybody else can see it uh, much easier than we can. So that's, uh, you know, that's an example of the pre-contemplation. One of the things I, I've loved you talking about over the years for pre-contemplation is that it's much more a time to explore self, to, to explore the self than it is to talk about action. It's not even a great time to be talking about, let's do this, let's do that. I think it's time to do this beer or else uh, to threaten them with the risks of not changing. Right. It's actually really a wonderful time to join them in all of the risks they feel around changing. Right. To, to, to help to help describe their dilemma. Sounds like you're in a real jam because this has worked for you pretty well for a long time, drinking this much every day. It, it almost works to control all your anxiety or something. Well, and, and um, you used a couple words that I wouldn't use. It's like, it seems like you found something that helps you get through your life. 
and other people are distressed by that. Yes. Tell me what you think is happening. Um, uh, a, a really powerful one I had was uh, a gentleman came because exactly somebody had said, you drink a lot, you drink too much. And he was highly functional, right? And uh, so I said, well, you know, why do you think your wife is saying that? Just to spoil your fun or... I mean, she wants to make your life miserable or, no, no, she loves me, you know. I mean, okay, so let's get that one out of the way. So let's check to see. You tell me how many beers you have a week. We'll check it with the national averages and we'll find out. Right? Is that okay? okay? So we did that. And uh, it came back. He was in the 97th percentile, which means only 3% <laughs> drank more than he did throughout the United States. Right. And uh, yeah. uh, I show him that and he goes, well, that can't possibly be true because all my, I don't drink as much as my friends, right? which yeah. it's just, you know, we all drink <laughs> about the same or a little more or a little less than our friends. And uh, I said, well, you know, I guess you really can't trust the government, can you? I mean, it's just like they just make this stuff up to spoil, right. spoil people's lives. Like if this were true, <laughs> spoil your life. And he goes, Oh no, that's, I mean, that's stupid. I mean, they don't even know me, right? <laughs> so, I mean, and, uh, so, so immediately he goes to, okay, so what do we need to do about this? Right. So he moved from the pre-contemplation stage ready to, to do something. So it isn't like yeah. we spend six months here, or six hours or six days or, you know, it, it, it's in that moment where it immediately goes from the only reason I'm here is because my wife suggested to, wow, <laughs> if that's true, then I got a problem, and so do my friends, right? And so we said, well, I said, well, here's the next thing I'd like you to do. And uh, and he did that and came back, and uh, in some detail, I had him write a um, history of his relationship with alcohol as if it were a woman. Wow. We first met when I was 12. I've seen our relationship develop, da-da-da-da-da. This is a history of it. And at the end of it, he said, you know, it's time to back off. Uh, you can be my friend, but you don't come live at my house. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? Like the, the closer you got him, even let, giving him room to fully romanticize the relationship with it, quite literally. Yeah. Uh, or, or to jump out in front of him with his defenses to say, well, you know, the government's probably just designed a study like this just to make you miserable. Uh, you right. hold all of the resistance to change for him for a minute, and then he's free to go, well, that's stupid. I mean, come on. Yeah. But it probably had you said, now, we both know the government's really trying to help you, he would have gone right. the other way. Right, right. Isn't right. that amazing? Yeah. I often say to clients, I think half of them will laugh when they hear me say this right now, because I say it a lot. You're not dumb and you're not crazy. There's a reason you're doing this. Life right. taught you to do this for a very good reason. And I'll bet it was really helpful in the past. I bet you needed this badly. And there's something about that shift right there when you can take the shame out of how we got to here that makes the pre-contemplation begin to want to move into contemplation. And uh, the whole thing about um, when's the first time this thing, whether it be anxiety or depression, showed up in your life. And um, what was happening to that little boy or little girl at that moment in time where this became a way that you survived? And it worked, right? And then we walk through what other times are you aware of in your life where this came over you 
helped you survive a moment or whatever. And without saying you don't need to be ashamed of it, suddenly they began to see it as, wow, it really, I mean, it really did save me, right? And, um, and it's a natural thing. We all find ways to save our souls uh, because there's always comes a point in time in our lives as kids. We realize our parents, no matter how perfect they are, can keep us perfectly safe. And then we go looking for something that helps us manage all of that fear. Yeah, uh, for some of us, it, uh, for some of us, it's intellectualism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for some, for some of us, it's depression. For some of us, it's going to be alone. Uh, for some of us, we find something to eat and or something to drink that comforts us. Mm-hmm. And um, for some of those things, we're actually taught, you know, by the adults. You're feeling bad. Let's go have a cookie. Yeah. That, that's what that's you, that's what you do with feeling when you're sad. You go eat a cookie. That there must be how it works. Yeah, and we have adult versions of that, right? So I can think of somebody I care about a whole lot um, who uh, still goes to ice cream on a daily basis, despite knowing how much the sugar hurts her, uh, because it was one of the few ways her mom would nurture her. That's a really good point. That we know better. That's the that's the prefrontal cortex, that's the executive function. But the hurting part is subconscious. And it is very resistant. When when it's in a lot of pain, it does not trust the neocortex. It's like, look, we're dying. That's how that's how painful it is. Now we're in the neocortex, we're not dying. But for that subconscious, it feels like we're dying. Yeah. And this will keep us from dying. Yeah. So it's not only the the chemicals that are in the ice cream, but it's the whole ritual. I mean, there's the the thinking about it, and the you know, it, it's like setting up our stash, you know, putting the lines of cocaine on the table. That it's not just the cocaine; it's the ritual of it. Yeah, which is a comforting ritual. Yeah. So as people begin to shift out of pre-contemplation, they move to contemplation, and this is a place where they're instead of almost entirely resistant to change, they're kind of ambivalent about it. They're more sitting on the fence. They're starting to think, huh, maybe they have a point. Maybe. 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 Right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a, a metaphor that I like for this is what I learned when I lived out West. An old cowboy, we were talking about this, right? And he goes, well, first time somebody calls you an a-hole, just ignore him. That's pre-contemplation, right? Second time, they call you an a-hole when nobody's looking, turning around to see if you've grown a tail. Right? <laughs> and then as we move through the contemplation stage, to uh, this really is a problem because contemplation would mean, I, I think there is, but towards the end of that stage, there's like, okay, there is. So I'm ready to do that. That, that part of it is called uh, just go buy a saddle. Right. <laughs> you start getting... Pretty clear because they were talking about horses when he was pointing to horses. You know, if somebody calls you a horses, right? Then uh, just go buy a saddle, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so that that's sort of the phase of the contemplation stage, which is uh, okay. So there may be, and then towards the end of that, there is. Right. So all of that I see as a part of the contemplation stage. It's not like a cog railway either. Like once you get to the pre-contemplation, then you never go back there again. I mean, this can happen from session to session. Like this person I was talking about, I, I went to see her again. She was so I don't know why we're here. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she was right back 
to where she was to begin with. But it's a very easy thing, you know, because now that they have already identified, it's just a quote, reminding them of, of what they've already told me. It's remarkable to watch that happen. And that the slower I go, the faster we get there, right? Uh, I mean, this is just, I think of that phrase all the time. I probably said it in every episode of this show so far, um, because there's, there's just something strangely, paradoxically uh, true about really slowing down and not rushing them to the next stage. And often they will jump from pre-contemplation, you know, practically all the way to action. Like they are hot to take some kind of action on the way out of the room, but they may come back the next week and, and be scared again and back to needing yep. needing some help to be with that part that says, I'm not so sure. And so you have to keep validating that lack of readiness when they're still contemplating, when they're still not sure they want this or to be helping them rem- remember that it's their decision still. They're safe. We're not in a hurry here. Uh, at least I'm not in a hurry. Uh, and, and the other thing that I have to be open to is maybe it's something has changed. Like I have to let go of the assumption that what we discovered is still accurate because as they get closer to it, they may understand it. It was not really that. Okay? Yeah. Okay. So um, people will talk to me about their depression, right? And so we start moving it and they'll go, you know what? It's not depression. It's my anger. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's follow that one. And they might end up, uh, I lived, this literally happened one day, uh, depression, anger, fear. I mean, each one in one day, uh, I had them moving around in chairs and speaking from those various things. It came to a longing. The last one was desiring to love and be loved. It started out as depression, right? Anger, you no. Know, fear, and then just this longing part. So underneath the depression was just this deep longing for connection, yeah, real connection. To be okay with any of them being the terminal point or just a waste part of the way on the way to the deeper piece. Let's say that somebody out there is listening and they've been really wanting to change something in their lives. Maybe it's quit smoking or maybe it's change their diet or maybe it's finally start exercising the way they need to. Their mind is in one spot. I know I need to do this. I'm, I'm ready to go. Here it is. But they're not taking the action. Each day as it comes, they don't get up and go to the gym or eat something new or make a salad or, you know, toss out the cigarettes. Is that still contemplation when they, they think they're sure, but they're not taking any action yet? Yeah. Contemplation simply means... I think I probably do need to do this. It, it, it isn't like being in total denial about it. That they're aware that they need to, want to, it'd be good for them, whatever. So that's the contemplation stage. So you're really watching it, though. It's it's not just what they're saying or thinking. It's it's in part what they're doing. So until... Well, it's totally what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really about the, what are they... It's two really different parts of the brain. The, the neocortex, the executive function, is the parent going to the kid, you should do this. And the kid's going, screw you. <laughs> Not ready. <laughs> you know, that doesn't yeah, sound good. Whatever you say, whatever you say, yeah, you can keep it away from me for a day or two, whatever. But when I get really hungry again, I'm going to do it. There's, there's been no, there's been no, no motivating event for that subconscious to change anything. 
And so the motivational interviewing concept is how do we instruct, how do we get in touch with that subconscious and allow it to see what the neocortex sees? We really need to change this. Subconscious is in control, unfortunately. Uh, 90% of all of our decisions every day are made by it without our awareness. And that part of us is not interested in being yelled at. <laughs> no, it actually doesn't do language well, right? Yeah. So if people move through contemplation and they get to a place where they're more clear, they're ready to change, what's next? Well, um, it's they, they've identified as the planning stage. Mm-hmm. Planning and preparation. And that is developing strategies to move. It's sort of like um, I look at a roadmap and I go, I want to go to um, Scottsdale, Arizona. I look at the map going, okay, here's what I need to do first and second and third in terms of direction. And I've got to get my car ready. And then, you know, it's, it's preparing to do that. So if somebody finds themselves or the person or, for that matter, the puppy (laughs) that they're working with, the child they're parenting, at that stage where they're ready to make preparation, I mean, they're actually beginning to really take some action. How do you you work with that? First of all, uh, one of the questions I ask is, um, when you have changed things before, and we all have, you know, we all went from being a high school student um, and some of us went on to college. It's like, that's a change. How did you do that? Like, what, what, what resources did you use to do that? And I find out from them what their change template is, because we all have one already, right? So uh, tell me other things in your life that you've changed, that you've done, that may have seemed like impossible for you. Yeah. But you did it anyway. Like, how did you pull that off? And if I know their stories well enough, it's like, if they don't remember, I go, well, you know, uh, you're a single parent. You went to school, you raised your kids. How did you do that? And you held a job. Like, how did you, how did you do that? Well, I read a book. Okay. Bingo. And in my mind, it's okay. So information helps. So I put that in my little thing. And, um, you know, I had support. My, my parents really supported me. Okay. Support. Mm-hmm. So now we have information. We have support. No, I looked at my daughter every day going, I want to make your life better. It's all right. So, okay, uh, having somebody else who's going to benefit from this change in mind. Okay, so as the, quote, helper, I'm helping them. I'm I'm sort of peeling out who it was and what they read and and all that kind of stuff. Um, And it's like, okay, so how many of these things can we implement now? Like who... What kind of information would you need in terms of how people change, you know, and um, this particular habit or what other people have done or, you know, what kind of information would be helpful? Mm. And and actually just try to apply that template to, you know, the change that they want to make. And then if I can enhance the template by saying, well, you know, um, there's this, there's that, there's this, we can add to um, this plan. that. You know, has been successful to you before. And it's it's a powerful thing for people to be reminded of success when about this thing, typically they're feeling very powerless. Yes. Like they just can't do it. Typically they've tried. It isn't like the first time around that they've tried this. But they've had many failures at it. Yes. Often ones that they, they don't mention in that first stage, right, where they're <laughs> pre-contemplative, 
and you say, you know, any idea why you're here? And they say, no, no idea. Even though there have been significant attempts in the past to change the very thing they came here to change, there's just this part that we're not aware of that stuff. But by the time we get to preparation and planning, we kind of are at that place where we're, we're aware we've done it before. And mostly we're just thinking about the ways we failed. And when we get there, again, we'll run into the fear. Uh, and so we, they may go all the way back to, I, I don't really know why I'm even trying to do this. Right. right. So, okay, let's, let's go back there. Um, because the closer we get to change, the more fearful we become of it. Why is that so scary? Especially when we're, you know, paying Ted Klontz himself to, to help us make the change. And yet the closer we get to that very change, we want so much at that stage, not at the beginning, but later. What's, what is so scary about change, Ted? The part of our brain that manages our life is very lazy. It, it won't do anything it, it doesn't have to do. That's why we always drive the same way to work, right? Mm. Um, it, it takes shortcuts all the time. And what it, all it knows is we're alive, right? It doesn't care whether we're happy. Happy is like a flu food thing, right? We're, we're safe, um, you know, relatively speaking. Our, our life is better than other people's. Um, and by the way, if we change ours, everybody else's that I'm interacting with is going to change too. And that isn't always pleasant, right? Yeah. Um, quite often, uh, a person who quits drinking, um, their whole family is organized around their drinking. And once that stops, that everybody else is going to have to change there too. Uh, I was just working with a couple recently where he quit drinking. And what he started doing then was talking about how he really felt. Yes. And nobody liked, <laughs> nobody liked to hear, and his wife divorced him. Yes. I didn't marry you to hear what you thought. Right? It's like, well, okay. So we, we sort of know that not only are we going to change, but our world is going to shift and change a little bit too if you do this. Yeah. And that belonging need then is challenged. Like, uh, I'm going to lose my tribe. I'm going to lose my special connections or whatever, which I believe are real. I mean, this just not all made up that there's some risk that if you change and if you become different, the people who organize themselves and their relationships around you behaving this way, I'm not, I'm not going to feel comfortable around you anymore. If you go and you say, no, thank you to the wine when you used to, or, or you're not smoking anymore with people who smoke, whether it be, nicotine or something else it's like everybody's less comfortable so it's not just about us changing it's about what we stand to lose what we stand to gain is an unknown because we've never been there we don't realize there's a whole bunch of people in the world who don't drink it, it makes a lot more sense when you think about the risk for loss that you're talking about real grief that i could lose a tool that kept me alive at one point or at least kept me sane kept me, you know, able to withstand the kind of pain I once faced. I risk losing a behavior pattern that has at least kept me, you know, uh, on the planet, like it's ensured survival just because it's worked. It may be also threatening my survival, um, but ironically, that's only my my neocortex that knows that the the deep limbic system is going no 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 this this has worked trust me <laughs> and then we're also threatening our relationships <clears throat> what if we change this and those all change too will my friends go away the closer we get to it the more we see those changes beginning to occur already yeah 
you know, I had the really extraordinary experience of of talking at length with a client who shared with her group that because of the strange straight winds that came through Nashville, uh, there was a serious power outage in her area and she was without power for multiple days. She had the experience of finally encountering her own anxiety and how much of her life was built around managing that. And she was brave enough to go on to see what would happen if she stopped encountering, I mean, stopped managing her anxiety through all of these behaviors. It amounted to risking a lot of grief and a lot of discomfort. And it's like, no wonder, you know, for, for all of us, it's just an example of what we, so many of us have got versions of this we don't even know about. This is an extremely high functioning person. I mean, kind of everything you'd want to see from the outside. So we're not talking about substance use, right? We're just talking about sort of rituals throughout the day, a, a structure for one's daily life that ends up being all about managing experience. And it's incredible how little we're aware of that we're doing that until we yeah. encounter an option to change something huge. <clears throat> so if somebody gets through preparation and we start to in encourage you know, small steps, and we start getting them in touch with the part of them that has succeeded in the past, they get to action. Tell us a little bit about what that's like. Well, that's what all of us are best at, right? We know what you should do. Right. <laughs> we've, we've got the list, and especially those of us who are trained professionally, that's we know exactly what to do. You want to quit drinking? Boom, 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 right? Um, and that's where we feel our best, and that's where we often have to slow down a little bit, right? So, uh, again, uh, it comes down to, um, so, uh, you, you acted on this thing. These are the strategies that you used then. Let's take those strategies. So you did some reading. You had a support person. You hung out with people. You know, you, you began to, um, enter into that world of change. I'm thinking about high school to college or whatever it might be. And, um, so, um, Again, making it their plan, what makes the most sense to you? By the way, what have you already tried? Right. What have you thought about trying? What have you read that other people have done to change this? Uh, what would you tell me to do and how would you tell me to do it? Right. So again, instead of laying out their plan from me for them, it's like, so, I mean, you're, you're a logical person here. And uh, so... What would need to happen first and second and third and fourth? And then at the very end, if I have some ideas, uh, then I say, well, um, would you like some other thoughts about it? And quite often they are. And then we just do a selection process from that. I begin already to tell them that this is not, again, a cog railroad. Most change occurs um, in fits and starts. If there's a gradual movement towards, right, uh, the ultimate goal. And um, so a part of the change process is failure, which is the next stage, which is called relapse. But it, it's uh, I, I begin building that into the conversation already. And what I found is that makes them even more motivated to do it perfectly, which is, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that, you know, we're, 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 uh, this is a big project here, and um, this is quite often not a, a linear process. It's an up-and-down process. 
let's let's do this. And then uh, part of that plan, of course, is uh, building an accountability. Are you the kind of person who benefits from checking in with somebody every day about what you've done? You know, what, what works for you? Some people, it's like, yes. And some people, no, I don't like people looking over my shoulder. Um, well, you know, how can you be accountable to yourself? Uh, what, what have you found to be helpful, um, to, to remind you of what it is you've made a commitment to do? And, and we work that out. So again, each plan is highly individualized and it's, uh, quite often based on the template, uh, of, of what's already been successful for them. It's also built on the template of what hasn't worked for them. Right? Yes. Um, so, so they can be reminded of, yeah, I've been there, done that, tried that, that didn't work. A, a few things are coming to mind as you're saying, talking about this action phase. W- one of them is just that your humility coming into a session and each new client, each new time every week, right, uh, lets you come in without memory or destination, as you said. And in that way, instead of applying to their process what has worked for you, <laughs> you're slowing down to ask right. what has worked for them, mm-hmm. which a whole lot of us forget to do. Even with our own children, we will want to give them the thing that worked for us as kids and not the thing that they need. We, we, we forget to ask our, you know, 10-year-old, hey, we got a couple ways we could do this, kiddo. What do you think about this? And what do you think about that one? And, you know, we can give them a little structure and asking, but we can find out, like, what sounds right to them in terms of not just this action, but that next stage of maintenance of kind of like, how will we keep this going down the road? And I really like that you you continue to listen, even at that place where, okay, hot damn, here we go. We're finally at the place we've all been waiting for. You know, this is the place where, like, I've got all this information. Surely they want. You're still saying, "Well, tell me what's worked in the past and what hasn't," and uh, and let's mm-hmm. let's remember that together. And what's worked for other people that you know and you know, people you've read about. And yeah, I love the notion. I don't know why this phrase came to me years ago, but I say all the time, "The tide comes in in waves." And that's a nice way to just kind of say, well, so we're going to change a whole bunch this week and we may backwash a little ways and that's okay because that's just giving ride to an, a new wave that comes forward again. We're going to, this this is the natural change process. Another thing that, that the action stage brings up for me is, I think in some ways, it occurred to me as you were talking about this, that in some ways, maybe a whole lot of this podcast is about this one problem that most of us think the change process starts at action. <laughs> and so there are change agents out there and there are coaches selling millions of books and there are, you know, uh, sports coaches who are moving their team with lots of screaming and there are parents who are doing much of the same things, right? And all of them have got this idea that this person I'm trying to change is already ready to go and all they need is enough information and a kick in the pants. And surely they'll want to do it next. And that's the stuff where even when it's applied to ourselves, even when we desperately want to change, if we haven't really slowed down for the initial stages and considered the parts of us that would be left behind, the parts that aren't ready to change yet, it doesn't work. The, it's uh, like a 10% success rate yep. of every 100 people who go through open heart surgery where they stop your heart and then they start it back up again, maybe who need to change their lifestyle, 10 do, of every 100. 
Wow. And it seems like there, it is so much of the, well, just the less considered, less popular, less understood approaches to joining people in their stuckness that finally unlocks that willingness to take serious action and maintain it Mm -hmm. and survive relapses and come back to it and try again after that too, which is that next stage. You know, I, I just had the picture of a grandfather with their grandson, or really somebody else's grandson, who gently teaches by showing and just being with and letting the kid explore and make his own mistakes. I, uh, right now, I'm, I'm working with a 20-year-old. Um, I have a farm that I use, and he does all the hard labor, and, and he's learning how to do equipment. And the other day, I had him backing something up, and it took him about 20 minutes, and he goes, I'm sorry it took so long. And I said, but that's how we learn. Right? He was self-correcting. And um, uh, so, so that's, that we never, we never, we never outgrow that, you know, like, uh, let me take away the fear of your judgment, take away the, I should do this and everything, and just let me try. And uh, I'll, I'll get it. You know? I'll, I'll become the person that I most want to be. I have the right kind of environment, I'll, I'll naturally do that. Yeah. Certainly one of the hugest things I've learned from you over these many years, and not just working with others, but just in shifting how I approach myself, is that throughout the pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, and planning, action, maintenance, and relapse, and back to action, maintenance, and so on, that one of the hugest things that keeps me stuck in a pattern like that or any of my dear clients like that is shame. Talk to us about shame a little bit. What is going on there? I, I believe it's one of the greatest inhibitors of change. That, that shame we feel um, when we don't do it perfectly. And I believe that that's because early on we've been trained about what mistakes are. Know what, how to, as opposed to seeing them as, well, I'm learning. I think Edison was, you know, like, well, I know whoever invented Formula 409, 408 of them failed, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, and he, like Edison said, well, I know a way it doesn't work now. (laughs) And that he talked about the light bulb like that. We're not taught that. Essentially, we, in our culture, we have very little tolerance for mistakes. And so when, when we fail to meet up to whatever the perfection is, we feel like there's something wrong with us. And I also believe our, te- our, our culture, for the most part, teaches us very early on there's something not right about us. We're not okay. Mm. Right? So if my son at three years old is crying and I don't think there's any reason for him to cry, then I say, you know, I'll give you something to cry about. Right? And, and we, we totally... We totally separate the, the person from their own natural knowing, right? And uh, so shame is sort of built into our culture. I believe that's how we control people uh, with the shame too. Uh, so that, I mean, that's that's one way of guiding the, the horse, so to speak. This this approach really is, as you mentioned earlier, de-shaming because there is no shame in the process of being a human being and changing as a human being. There's no shame. Yeah. Right? Uh, we can we can impose shame on it, but it will hinder the, the change that we're looking for. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, 
and this goes a little political here, but I think one of the worst things that as psychologists we do, I do, I don't do it, but other people do, is label them. Right? Mm. So somebody will come in and say, I know I'm bipolar. It's like, I, I just want to hold my head and go, oh my God, you have swallowed, you know, like, oh my God. Right. And they don't say, Hey, I'm proud. I'm bipolar. It's like, I am really sick and really broken. And I've read what that means. It means I'll never get better. It's like, why would we do that to a person? Right. That we're trying to help, you know, because it's an access to diagnosis, right? And it's like, sorry, never gets better. It's like, what? You know, we wonder why they live in shame. It's like, well, we put these labels on them and, you know, that's uh, why I'm codependent. I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this addict, an addict. No, you have a special relationship with something. That's what, that's all it is, right? Mm. Uh, but we, we have to pathologize it. So I think our culture does a lot of pathologizing and pathology means there's something wrong with me, which is exactly what shame is. There's something inherently wrong with me. Yeah. For the access one diagnoses, you know, I've seen bo- it go both ways. People can get really married to the idea of, I have this kind of depression, I have this kind of anxiety, and and it will always be that way forevermore. And then I've also sometimes seen folks feel really relieved to have somebody say, it's not your fault. You just have this thing, and you could think of it like an illness that's treatable. We can change it. But we got to at least acknowledge that's what it is for the access to stuff, you know, borderline narcissism and so on. Like sometimes it just seems like it's a pretty brutal label. Um, and especially when there isn't any compassion built into it and, and a framework for it. it. it It's just, as you say, it can be really terrible. But either one of them, the labels can can get they can fuse so much with the idea of this is now who I am and not just how I've been, the the ashamed yeah. part of all of us is really glad to take on another negative label and, and wave it like a flag. Yeah. Well, and especially and throw it on other people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even in your first example, I think there's another way to do that. Yeah. That uh, have them describe what it is and to have them recognize it's a it's a, a way that they interact with themselves, that they were taught to interact with themselves. Yeah. And um, because they were taught, we can do another kind of teaching. Right? So it's just changing what you were taught yeah. uh, about this thing that happens to you. Yeah. If we're not supposed to be depressed, so we miss the early warning sign. We miss the tap on the shoulder that something's not quite right. And we wait till the sledgehammer hits us and knocks us down. And it's like, by then, we don't even remember how we got there. Yeah. But I, I call them the little nudges. Pay attention to the taps on the shoulder. I've learned personally, if I don't do that, it, it eventually comes and wipes me out. And I'm totally lost. But if I pay, the earlier I pay attention to it, the less often that happens. There's a, even with yourself, there's a, a, a deeper, sooner more respectful kind of listening that yeah, helps you. Yeah, know, there was a news thing that happened about a week ago, and I felt it happen on the inside. I felt it physical something happening, and I thought something just happened, and I need to pay attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, um, 
it's not, sometimes it's not quick acting out. It doesn't come out quickly. It's like, you know, something happened. And so I, I need to stay with it to find out whatever the truth is about that. Yeah. And I, I'm glad I did that. The old me would have totally ignored that and gone right to the action station, do something uh, to probably get rid of this thing. And it would probably have been pretty inappropriate <laughs> long term. Yeah. Right. So. Another thing I've, you know, in addition to uh, confrontation, which is a very popular notion of, you know, to drive change, uh, that I think you're, I think there's really clear research out there that shows that confrontation really doesn't work very well. Am I right? That's really what I caught a hold of with the motivational interviewing. Without knowing what I was doing, I was always doing motivational interviewing. But now it's like, oh, there are actually stages to that. I mean, there's actually a concrete um, thing to this. And their, their whole research, the, the beginning of motivational interviewing came from their research on sobriety one year after treatment. So they went, they did a lot of investigation of a lot of treatment centers. And they were looking for correlation for the people who were not drinking one year later. The story is fascinating um, about they they couldn't find any until this guy had a dream in the middle of the night going, oh, I wonder, and he went down and went through all the research. It's like, oh my God, that's it. The more confrontation that occurred during treatment, the more likely the person would be drinking one year later. Incredible. And our, and our mental health system, especially our addiction system, is based on confrontation. I mean, that's the basis of it. Very much so. That's that's an extraordinary finding right there. I know. It just it it number one, it validated what my experience had been. So I felt really good about that. Right. And and uh, also at the time we were running a, a, a treatment center that was non-confrontational, right? And so it sort of validated this this doesn't this doesn't feel right to do this. Let's do this. It used, in that treatment center we were running, when we took it over, nobody knew what the rules were before they came in. And they were confronted with the rules that night. And they were pretty severe. And uh, that was, quote, part of the treatment. We have to level everybody. Right? And it's like, there's something wrong with that. Yes. And so when I experienced that, I came back and I changed the entire thing. This is before I found out that it was... Um, statistically uh, appropriate to do that. I took all the surprises out, which is a form of confrontation. Uh, like the surprise party interventions, uh, that's a confrontation. Keep going with the other definitions of confrontation, because I th- I, I've known you for 20 years, but I think this will surprise a lot of folks. Most folks are going to imagine confronting means, you know, blaming and yelling. But but there are all kinds of subtle forms of confrontation. Yeah, my my favorite one to sort of blow people's minds is questions, asking for information in a question form. Tell us more about that. Well, the research shows that if you ask me, you just didn't do that. You said, tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, I've learned from you. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, you could have said, what do you mean? Right. right. If you would have said, what do you mean? Unknowns to me, unknowns to you, my body would have gone into a stress response. A distress response, heart rate, blood pressure, sweating, the whole, if I'd been linked up, it would, bing, it would, it would, you know, really showed up. But the way you did it is, well, tell me more about that. 
it would show the exact opposite. I, I'm relaxing. Well, he, he wants to know. It's like, I don't know if you saw me or not, but I actually leaned towards you. Well, tell me where I said. Yes, and smiled. So, I mean, those are just the facts, whether we like it or whether we don't like it or whatever. The one thing questions do is they protect us, the, the questioner, from exposing ourselves. It puts you on the defense, and I get to maintain my seat of authority, right? I would like to know more. Or please tell me more about that. Cause I could, uh, if you said, please tell me more about that, I could say, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Now you're in distress because I, I rejected you, right? Mm. That's why we don't do it. But rather than saying, well, I'm really curious about that. I'd like to know more about that. Uh, we open ourselves up to them going, I don't want to tell you anything more about it. So it's easier for you to say, so why that? The pressure's on me now, right? And the exposure's on me. And it's like, well, because I don't want to, or, you know, whatever the question is. And I'm talking even the most benign questions, like, what do you want for dinner? Now, I know that sounds crazy. And the prefrontal cortex is going, what the heck is he talking about? That can't possibly be true. But, you know, uh, again, uh, I've been doing this for 40 or 50 years because it just didn't feel right. And uh, motivational interviewing has done the research. Uh, so, after they found out the word confrontation, they began examining what is confrontation. Now, there, there is the model of yelling and screaming and in your face and that kind of thing. But they began looking at other subtle forms of confrontation. We don't mean to, we don't need, that's not our intent, but it has that effect and questions is one of those. It's really interesting. I've been curious about that for all the years I've known you. And um <laughs> And I've gotten to watch it in some really interesting ways because I do a lot of group psychotherapy. I get to, you know, watch interactions among people, you know, still four times a week, but it's been as high as seven different groups a week. And one thing that is very reliably and predictably so is that as somebody goes into a whole lot of feeling, a younger group will want to ask them questions. And the moment they start, the feeling dries up like that snap of the fingers, the tears stop, and they go into their heads, and you can see them begin to hold their breath differently, and they try to perform the right answer. And when somebody says instead uh, something like, I really relate to you, or I'm so glad you're talking about this, or it would help me to hear more about what you went through, or I feel so much closer to you when you share this. They inevitably share more and with greater feeling and depth and insight and trust every time. And it's incredible how they can mean that when they say, why are you, why did that happen to you? Why would anyone do that to someone as kind as you? It's, it can be a caring question and yet it shuts them down every time. It's amazing. It's also very interesting to watch how annoyed people become with me, even if they've been in group for years, when I say, hey, that that's a very intelligent question, but can you talk about the feelings coming up for you first? They're like, oh, there he goes again, right? Every time. <laughs> and it's, we are so attached to our questions. It's remarkable. <clears throat> but to confrontation of every kind. For those of you who are listening who don't have clients or clientele, uh, a gentleman came up to me last year uh, at a conference where I was doing showing them the alternative to questions and actually having them practice alternatives within the session. Uh, he came up to the front of the room. I was talking and he's approaching. I don't know why he's approaching. He said, I just need to say something. He took the microphone. And he said, look, I heard him say this seven years ago and I went home 
And from that point on, I have never asked my daughter another question. When she was 12 years old at the time, and for the last seven years, our relationship has only gotten better and better and better. So listen to him. Wow. So this works not only with our clients, but with the people we care most about, you know, like to interact with them by uh, the idea of please tell me, or I'd like to know more about to our grandchildren, to our children, to our partners, to our friends, whatever it is, they all benefit from the sense of he cares about me. It's not cross-examining me. This isn't some kind of trick. No, I I always say that if you want to know the true effect of a question, get an adolescent, ask them a question, have their mom or dad ask them a question, and they'll shrug the shoulders. They're literally trying to shrug the hook out, right? Because they know that, you know, once they're hooked, mom and dad are usually trying to say something, right? But they do it in a question form, right? Like, Like, why are you doing that? When really mom and dad's agenda is you should be doing this or I don't like what you're doing or whatever. What were you thinking? uh, (laughs) That's a popular one with adolescents. Yeah. I, I try, I, I do my best with that myself and I can always see such a difference in my son. And I'll bet, I mean, just imagine everyone out there listening, the difference between these two things. Hey, how was your day? And Hey, I would love to know how your day was. It's subtle, but there's such a difference between those two. And really, the first one is an expression of love in its way, but it it comes in 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 a way that affects the nervous system differently. You've also talked about praise being an interesting problem in the change process. (laughs) This comes from the work of, uh, you know, the Thomas, I can't remember his outfit of it in a minute, but an old old body of information. he talks about um, the dirty dozen, and they talk about that in motivational interviewing also. But uh, he wrote books on uh, parent effectiveness training and teacher effectiveness training and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, one way to actually stop whatever's going on that you're praising and begin to inhibit it ever happening again is to praise the outcome of some particular thing. For example, um, there was a, a, a relatively famous artist whose daughter, you know, wanted to learn how to paint three years old. Mother was, you know, like fast, like just ecstatic that she would want to. And uh, she saw that her daughter had this natural talent, like she was really good at it. And uh, when she praised her painting over a short period of time, what she notices is she painted the, the girl got messier and messier, the paintings become, and finally the girl just quit at age three. And when when she went back to praising the fact or supporting the fact that she would show up and being even want to, it all came back. And there's a psychologist out of UCLA, I think, called Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. Is that Carol Dweck? Who's written a book about that. Carol Dweck, uh-huh. right? And uh, she... She's done a study on this, and she's found that praise for outcomes actually will reduce the likelihood of that outcome. Because, you know, once you've done, this is a great picture. Now that person feels like they have to do at least that good or better the next time. And that suddenly, instead of it coming from inside of them, it becomes a performance thing. And um, some people continue doing it anyway. 
but quite often this like when we that's when we begin shutting down because we can't compete with ourselves wow. it's already perfect it's already great whatever and so with my granddaughters i know what i try to do is um they went out for the basketball team and they made it right and you know there's going to be a day when she goes out for the basketball team and doesn't make it so what i said is it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there with a strange group of people you don't know who the coach is going to be and uh, so walk out there and do it anyway like that's amazing right mm. now if i said you made the basketball team woohoo she's likely more likely if she sort of senses she might not make the basketball team she won't even try yes that's what the research is i can see that happening sometimes with my son he's quite a gifted cellist and when he's mm-hmm. told too often uh wow, you're really good at this. He becomes more shy about playing. (laughs) And when I say things like, man, I'm hearing a lot of passion and creativity today in your practice. I love that. Or I really love how you show up regularly for your practice sessions. You know, like you're you're really consistent. Way to hang in there for that. That kind of thing. Um, He's so much more willing to play for the family or, you know, risk a little bit. Like, is it... And I, and I guess what that comes down to in my mind is we are so scared of disappointment and being disappointing. And that, that taps all that shame. It's really scary to disappoint. In our culture, we're measured by our doing. Yeah. Not by our being. So when we praise um, grit and patience and courage and vulnerability and showing up, we get a really different... Risk-taking, you know. Yes. Yeah, all those things. Wow. Well, you're, <laughs> I mean, when I, when I add up a whole bunch of these things, like you're taking away it in a, <laughs> a ton of tools that are popular, you know, change wrenches, you know, confrontation, praise, question asking, like all of these have downsides. No wonder it's very confusing to approach change in this different way. Yeah. And you take all those tools away and it's like, what, what, what tools do I have then? What do we have? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help us. Yeah. Well, the, 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 there's one word to replace all the tools. There's a, um, in the old days, doors used to have keys, right? Individual keys. But there was a skeleton key. It would open any door, right? Yeah. And so there's a skeleton key to this whole thing. And it's one word. It's called listening. Listening to ourself, listening to others, you know, that, that's it. Like the, the alternative to all these things is listening, right? So when you hear your son playing the cello, instead of going, how can I praise him? Pay attention to what's happening in you. Listen to you. And if it brings you to tears, you tell him that. There were several times today when you hit a certain combination that brought me to tears and it moved me. You were listening to him and then, then you're telling him what actually happened on the inside for you. Um, uh, listening to myself, you know, instead of confronting myself or criticizing myself or pretending like it's not happening or being defensive or, you know, like that kind of thing. It's like, there is no part of me that means to do me ill. 
it believes it's doing it's doing life-saving things for me even if i'm smoking a cigarette mm. it, it it believes that i need that and in that moment i do so what is it that i'm needing that this nicotine is saying you need this here like listen to myself like am i scared uh, am i feeling lonely um am i feeling like i have no freedom so this is a sign of independence i mean uh, my my sense is as you know that we every behavior that we have comes from one of six places either uh, a, we have a very strong need for belonging or autonomy or safety or self expression or purpose or connection and i think i would add one more uh, that would be validation mm. right? that everything we do is really an attempt to satisfy one or more of those needs and those are not wants those are needs that are just as strong as your need to take in the next breath. Mm. And you can hold your breath, but at some point in time, you're just going to go, <gasps> you know, and if that happens to have nicotine or alcohol or, or sex or anything, and at that, you're going to inhale it because that part of your brain believes that death is imminent. Right? Mm. And if you can pay attention to, you know, this, what I call the tap on the shoulder, like, Okay, I'm feeling a little lonely here. If, if I don't do something, I know what I'm going to go do, and that's go buy a chocolate-covered box of cherries, right? Mm. And I'm going to eat three or four of them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not in my best interest. So uh, what what do I need to do differently? When I think about 20 years of of your way of listening for our long check-ins for our group, or if I just need to call you up and you know, be heard by somebody safe. You have a way of listening that isn't listening while preparing a comment. You mean really right. listening. And your version of listening right. is, starts with that kind of compassion you were talking about early in this hour, an assumption that they're not broken, that this old code once made perfect sense in their lives, and they're now in this painful dilemma where what once worked isn't working and they must be scared. Yeah. One of the ladies um, in the motivational interviewing field that I, I just love, her name is Mary Lou Casey. She once said, what people need most is a good listening to. And uh, that I've never forgotten that. I forget to do that <laughs> sometimes, but <laughs> But uh, because I'm I'm a fixer, right? I mean, that's what I get paid for, and that's what people think they need somebody like me to help them get fixed. And every once in a while, I think I can actually do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't do it perfectly, uh, but I know when I haven't. I know when I haven't listened well, um, because I start getting resistance from them. I'm moving a little too fast, or I'm moving in a direction they're not quite ready to go. Yeah. I uh, had a supervisor really early on who used to say, I have to be careful when I find myself listening quickly. <laughs> you are somebody who listens very slowly. You're just, I never feel rushed when, when I'm talking to you. you know, my wife has laughed for years. Her favorite you know, days of the month are the ones where I get to study with Ted because I come back so much softer. You know, even after 20 years, I think I've got it. And I'm always just humbled by, you know, the the moments together with our group. Where I'm just like, God, these guys are so good at this. 
I'm, I'm pushing again and I'll come home and I can be a little gentler. Um, but still much to learn and glad to be learning it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm still learning about it all and yeah. being reminded every day and taught. And, um, you know, what you're talking about in the, one of the last stages of change is it's relapse. And it's like, um, I forgot something. That's all relapse is, is I forgot to put something in the plan to make it work. Yeah. And then gradually, the plan comes together completely enough so that you know, suddenly we're doing that. And we don't, you know, looking back, we don't really remember how and when and where it happened, but it's just who we are now, which is the stage of integration. Right? So. Yes. Well, if that feels like a good place to wrap up, let's take a little break and then uh, share an experiential exercise for our listeners. Hey, it's Pete again, checking in. That word, relapse, I don't, I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the way, that word earned a lot more weight in the world, don't you think? I prefer Ted's take. I forgot something. That, and, and if I ever feel like the world is moving much too quickly, I feel like I have a new tool in the tool belt as I learn to listen more slowly. Next up... Ted brings us an exercise to help us encounter a change that you might be struggling to create in your life or a change that is pushing on you that you find yourself resisting. Before I let Ted take over your headphones again, I, I do want to remind you of the Change Paradox member support program at truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox. For every episode that showcases a guest interview like the one you just heard, supporting members get one more. It's called Afterthoughts, and in it, Dodge and I sit down to process everything we just learned. No guests, just two dear friends working through the deeply human exercise of learning and living each day. You'll get your very own unique podcast feed with all the special episodes in addition to the main interview episodes, so you can have everything in one place, your very special personal podcast you can listen and re-listen as often as you find you need it. Again, visit truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox. Scroll down just a bit on the page and you'll see the proper sign-up buttons to get started. Thanks to you all for joining us on this journey. I'll leave you with Ted Klontz and an exercise in encountering change in our lives. Part of what we talked about earlier in the presentation was um, how important listening was. And I, one of my mottos is um, the most important person to listen to is ourselves, which is the most difficult because the people closest to us are the ones that we have the most difficulty listening to without judgment, with curiosity, um, with, without an agenda all those kinds of things. And um, I, I have a little thing I do called ultimate listening. And I call it ultimate because if you can learn to listen to yourself compassionately, 
curiously, without judgment, but just as a witness to who you are from the inside, um, you'll be able to do that with everybody else too. So for everybody out there who's willing to do this, if you would get a sheet of paper and a pen or a pencil, And once you have that, what I would like for you to imagine is an urging that would represent a change, um, uh, a pressure to change, or maybe um, a very clear something that you want to do differently. And I'd like for you to imagine that as an energy field, like uh, like a maybe a person who has come up to you and they're really saying her life would be better if... Right. So first thing I'd like you to do is draw sort of a caricature picture of what that would look like. It might be uh, human, might be non-human, but to give yourself a sense of concretizing, if you will, what that energy would look like, uh, how you might describe it to me if I was saying, tell me what that energy looks like. And if you're not sure what to do, just let your pen start moving. And if you're really brave, if you have two pens, take one in each hand and let both of them start moving. Okay, so now what I would like for you to do is to imagine that you're sitting down across from it. Because if you've drawn it, you literally... It's there and you're here. And I'd like for you to um, begin having an interaction with it, uh, a dialogue, if you will. And it may start out in this form. Um, You've been in my life, either just arrived in my life, or you've been in my life for a long time. And I'd like to know more about you. I know something around you and all that kind of stuff, but I want to know more about you. Like, tell me why, tell me what message you're trying to give me that you believe is important to me that I need to pay attention to. So that might be your first inquiry. And then I want you to pay attention to the first words that come into your mind about that. Now, it may be a very gentle response from that part, like, well, I'm glad you finally asked, or it could be very harsh, like, well, I'm not talking to you. It doesn't matter really what it is. I want you to respond to whatever that first message was with curiosity, with courtesy, with judgment, and with compassion, And respond to that. For me, at one point in time, uh, I had this big push. I knew it was about my own mortality. And so I sat down one day and I I conjured up what death would look like. And I said, I want to get to know you more. And that began a dialogue that's been going on for eight years. And it's amazing how that relationship developed. So in this case, this part of you, it may have been a new arrival. It may have been around for a long time, but it's like you showed up in my life. Tell me why you showed up and you haven't gone away. And listen to what it would tell you. And you'll be going writing back and forth 
It'll, it'll say something and you'll respond. It'll some, say something more and you respond. And I would invite you, if there's a word like happy, like I, I want you to be happier, or I want you to be feel safer, whatever it might be, don't assume you know what that word means. Say, tell me more about the word safe. Tell me more about the word happy. And listen really, really deeply without an opinion, without a judgment, without a reaction, without an argument back. This is to get this part of you to open up so you can know it better. Because sometimes our urge to change can move us right to action. And it's really not the appropriate action because we haven't listened deeply enough to what it was trying to tell us. And I would encourage you to have this dialogue go on as long as it feels like it's productive. And when you're done, I want you to thank it for showing up and being willing to talk to you. And if it's in your sense, it might be valuable to continue the conversation. Um, you can tell them you'll be back. Or when it comes back to you, um, you will pay attention. He'll sit down at some point in time and pay attention to it again, because it may have some more to tell you. Yeah. So that's a that's really a way of listening to ourselves and we can extrapolate that into things beyond change. So I would use the same technique if you are sad or you're really joyful or you're really afraid um, or, or anything else that you're aware of. You know, whether it's a person who you're thinking about, you can't quit thinking about, sit down and have this conversation. Because remember, our psyche is constantly giving us things that it believes we need to know, need to pay attention to. It may be a part of our psyche that's a six-year-old scared little kid or 600-year-old wise person who's trying to deliver us some essential information for the well-being of our life. <laughs>